Hello, you are listening to the Secular Buddhism Podcast, and this is episode number 13. I am your host, Noah Roshetta, and today I'm talking about freedom. Welcome to the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This podcast is produced every week. Uh, where I cover philosophical topics within Buddhism and secular humanism. Remember, episodes 1 through 5 serve as a basic introduction to secular Buddhism and general Buddhist concepts. So if you're new to the podcast, I definitely recommend listening to the first five episodes in order. All episodes after that are meant to be individual topics that can be listened to in any order. And before starting, a quote I love to share by the Dalai Lama. He says, Do not try to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. Use it to be a better whatever you already are. Please keep this in mind as you listen and learn about the topics and concepts discussed in the podcast episode. And if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please feel free to share it, write a review, or give it a rating in iTunes. Um, And now let's jump into this week's topic. I'm really excited to be talking about freedom today, specifically uh, freedom in the Buddhist understanding from the Buddhist worldview uh, Buddhism is often referred to as the path of liberation or the path of freedom. But what exactly is this freedom that's being talked about? Freedom uh, freedom is not an absolute thing. It's a relative thing, right? Freedom is, is generally freedom from or freedom to. So in this sense, what we're talking about, the path of freedom, we're obtaining freedom, uh, it's relative to freedom from conceptual constraints and freedom to act or be uh, a certain way. So I want to jump into this and and, and really talk about this. Um, But uh, first, imagine a prisoner, someone who's been in jail uh, years and years, and they're finally going to be set free. So once that person is out out of the prison, their freedom is freedom from the constraints of the cell that they were in, or the, the constraints of the overall prison walls that they were behind, and freedom to freedom to do all the things to, to be a certain way or to act in a way that they couldn't while they were a prisoner. This could be as simple as the prisoner can now go to a store and go shopping. They're free to go to a store and go shopping. That's a freedom that they didn't have before. So understanding freedom in the sense that it's a relative thing, it's freedom to or freedom from, will help us to jump into another uh, deeper level of understanding of what truth is. Because what we're talking about here is, we've all heard the expression that the truth shall set you free, right? And again, what free from what? How does truth do that? To understand that, let's talk about truth for a little bit. So I like to categorize truth in two major categories. This is for me. I didn't get this anywhere. I just, for me, There are empirical truths and there are conceptual truths. Empirical truths would be truths that are true whether or not I believe anything. Uh, For example, an empirical truth is that if the temperature drops low enough, water solidifies and turns into ice. That's an empirical truth. It can be observed. It can be replicated. And uh, most of our empirical truths, if not all of our empirical truths, come from uh, science and scientific research. So science is always revealing new empirical truths for us. Um, Those are not the kind of truths that I'm going to talk about in this podcast. I'm talking about conceptual truths. 
So conceptual truths are truths that are true because of our beliefs, not in spite of our beliefs. For example, um, I get another way of saying this would be truths that are true whether or not there are humans, those are empirical truths. If there are no humans on the planet, um, we would still see during the winter months when the temperature's cold and water turns to ice, we would still there would still be these empirical truths happening, right? Now, conceptual truths are true because of humans, because of the beliefs that we have. So an example of a conceptual truth, I like to split this into two other categories, the societal truths and personal truths, but they're both still conceptual. Uh, an example of a societal truth would be that um, gold is more valuable than silver. That is a societal truth. It's a conceptual truth because it's only true because we believe that it's true. Now, if there were no humans on the planet, a lump of gold and a lump of silver next to each other in a field have no inherent value. You know, there's no inherent value that says the gold is worth more than the silver. These things are just things. But we come along and we assign meaning to things. We create stories. And inside of our conceptual understanding of the world, we have decided that gold is worth more than silver. Um, now, with the gold and silver example, it's not just because someone said, I mean, it, supply and demand, uh, scarcity of gold versus silver, all those things went into determining the value of gold being higher than silver. But still, overall, it's just a conceptual truth. And yet it's true. It's, it's even, you could argue it's factual. You know, you could go into the pawn store, into the pawn shop and have one ounce of gold and one ounce of silver, and you're going to get a lot more for your gold than you are from your silver. So it's a societal truth. It's conceptual, though. So these are truths that are true only because of our beliefs. And then you can scale this down from societal truths down to personal truths. Uh, for example, a personal truth for me would be that um, eggs taste better when you put hot sauce on them. This may be true for me while it's not true for you. There are countless examples of this. You know, someone who thinks hot dogs are better than hamburgers or hamburgers are better with cheese. Um, I keep using food analogies. It's not just uh, applicable to food, but any kind of personal conceptual truth. You know, I, being a Texan is better than being a Californian. Well, of course, that's what a conceptual truth that you would hold if you believe that Texas is better than California. Now, if you don't believe that, that's not a conceptual truth for you. I like to imagine conceptual truths categorized in in these societal and personal views, but I recently read a book called Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. It's a brief history of humankind. And in this book, he he there's this compelling argument about our ability as humans to go from you know, early humans as uh, hunters and gatherers and, and then collect into societies and become what we are today, uh, all hinges on the fact that we have the unique ability to tell and believe stories. It's our ability to tell stories and then hold these collective beliefs inside of our stories that propels humans to where we are now. Because with our ability to have a collective belief that gives us the ability to have politics, political systems, and governments uh, are conceptual truths. Same with religion and same with uh, economics. 
it's our shared belief that the value of this green piece of paper that has a one on it is actually worth something gives us the ability to interact with each other in commerce. It's a conceptual truth. Does it, is it really worth a dollar? Well, that doesn't mean anything. If there were no humans, that piece of paper doesn't mean anything. So this is a fascinating insight in this book, Sapiens, that illustrates how it is our ability to tell stories and believe stories that gives us, gets us to where we are today. So, but along with this comes the, the ability to be bound by our conceptual truths. This is, the, this is where the idea that good concepts are like a golden chain, bad concepts are like an iron chain, but they all equally bind you in the end. So that's uh, pretty powerful to think about. Everything that we hold as a conceptual truth binds us, and then we're bound by it. Think about all of the daily interactions you have with conceptual truths and how we're bound by them. And I don't mean bound in a bad way. I don't mean that we're bound by things as if that's bad. But to understand freedom, we need to understand that what, what we're free from and free to do and to do that, we need to know what conceptual truths we're bound to. Byron Katie mentions uh, a thought is harmless unless we believe it. And I think that's a powerful statement. A thought is harmless unless we believe it. Again, we're, we're talking about conceptual truths here, right? Not empirical truths. She says, it's not our thoughts, but our attachment to our thoughts that causes suffering. Attaching to a thought means believing that it's true without inquiring. A belief is a thought that we've been attaching to often for years. So when you think about conceptual truths and the beliefs, the beliefs that we have through uh, what we consider to be conceptual truths, you'll understand what binds you, what you're bound to. And that's, that's the sense of freedom that we're talking about here. So freedom, again, freedom to or freedom from, uh, has to do with our conceptual understanding of the world being at conflict with the empirical reality of the world. So this is this is to say that there is what what is, and then there's the story that we create around what is. And as long as we reside inside of the realm of the story of reality, we're not dealing with reality itself. Now, so this you know think about the the. Think about this. You're driving on the road and somebody cuts you off. Immediately there is what happened and then there's the story that we create about what happened, right? You know, typically in a scenario like that, we're thinking, okay, this person is a jerk. This person probably does this all the time, takes advantage of people, think they can do whatever they want, not obey the rules. Here they are just cutting me off. You know, there's a whole story attached to the event, and if you think about it, the suffering that you're experiencing during that event has to do with the story around it, not with the event, right? You get cut off. That doesn't do anything to you. Nothing happened. There's absolutely nothing going on when you get cut off. Um, but the story around it is is the dangerous part. The thought is harmless unless we believe it, right? The, we believe the story that we've created. So this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about freedom. It's freedom from habitual reactivity, Viktor Frankl uh, was an Austrian neurologist and a psychiatrist, and he was a founder of Logotherapy. Uh, but he was, a, he was a Holocaust survivor. He went through uh, some of the most difficult things that you could probably imagine going through. And um, 
something that he says, he talks about freedom in the sense that between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. This is really powerful. I want to talk about this, the, the concept that between stimulus and response, there's a space, because that's what Buddhism is trying to teach and, and, and really get at, is that as we go through life, we, we are reactive. And even worse, we're habitually reactive. We tend to just react on things. And, but between the stimulus and the response, there's the space. And it's inside of this space that we have the power to choose our response. There's a, a famous uh, story, I think it's a Zen story, um, but the story goes like this. There's a man standing on, on a trail or on a path, and he can see off in the distance that there's a man approaching him on a horse, and he's galloping at full speed. And he just watches, and as he gets closer and closer, he finally is close enough to talk to him. He, he asks this man, hey, where are you going? And the man just says, I don't know, ask the horse, as he gallops by at full speed. And the idea here is that um, we are like the horse and the rider. We have two systems in the mind. There's our intellectual uh, part of the brain that's like the rider, and then there's the emotional reactive side of us that's like the horse. And it, and you can read about this in uh, several books talk about this concept. Um, but the idea here is that oftentimes we go through life like this man on the horse that's running full speed and we don't, even, we don't know where it's going. But we don't even know. The worst part is we think we're in control, but the horse is the one that's deciding where we go and at what speed. This would be an example of living in a reactively, habitually reactive state of living. So the sense of freedom, again, has to do with that space in between the stimulus and the response where we actually have the power to choose our response. Now, imagine, again, being cut off. You're driving, you get cut off by another car, and then imagine if the story's different. The story this time is that the person there's a person in the back who's been injured. They're trying to get to the hospital as quickly as they can. They couldn't wait for the ambulance, so here they are speeding on the road. Now, the story changes, but the circumstances have not changed, right? You've just been cut off. There's reality. That's what is. The story around what is may have changed, and that changes everything, right? Now, in this scenario, you'd be thinking, everybody get out of the way. You're rooting for this person to get to the hospital as quickly as possible, and yet the the reality of what happened is identical to the previous story. The only difference is the story around it is now different. And, and yet we do this in life all the time. You know, all the time we go through life, things are happening, life presents something, and then we make meaning of it, and we give it a story. And inside of that story uh, is the suffering that we're going to experience. So think about the ways that we go through life creating stories around uh, outside of the reality of what's happening. There's a, a Zen story that kind of alludes to this um, concept. And the idea is that you're to imagine that you're a fisherman and you're out on the river fishing and you decide to lay down in your boat, take a, a little nap or just relax for a minute. And while you're laying in your boat, you hear this loud thud on the boat. You sit up and you turn around and you realize another fisherman's boat has crashed into your boat. There's a hole in your boat. And, and what kind of reaction you're going to have? You know, typically you're going to be upset thinking this idiot fisherman um, crashed his boat into mine. 
Um, and then they replay the scenario and ask you to imagine you're the fisherman, you're, you're out on the river and you decide to lay down and rest or take a nap. And then you hear the thud and you sit up, you immediately turn and realize a log has floated down the river and uh, collided with your boat. So the scenario and the outcome is the same. Your boat now has a little hole in it. Uh, the difference is that in one scenario, the what you feel can be anger towards the scenario, thinking, okay, well, that stinks. But in, and because it was just a log, now there's not a story behind it. You know, with the, with the person in the other boat, you're, you're creating meaning right away. This person does not pay attention. Uh, this person is... Um, uh, careless, you know, all the, all the, it doesn't matter whether or not the story is true. The point is that inside of the story is, is where we contain the suffering around the event. What is, is just what is. And then the story we create around what is determines how we feel about what is. And when you know that, and when you can understand that that's our natural tendency, then you can start to have this sense of freedom in between the stimulus and the response. This is the space that Viktor Frankl is talking about. And it's inside of that space that we can have the power to choose our response. And when we can choose our response, now we're no longer being reactive. Um, and I, and I kind of want to clarify that for a second too, because this idea that, okay, well, once I master this, I'll never be reactive. That's not accurate. Uh, reactivity uh, and emotions are a natural part of, of being human. But Let's go back to the example of the of the man on the horse. Living reactively is you're running somewhere and you don't know. You're not in control of that horse. Now, if you tame the horse, you can have a good relationship where you decide where it goes. You're essentially in control of that horse at all times. But if you're out in the field and a snake comes out of the grass, that horse will get spooked and you're going to have a good 10 to 15 seconds of of scary emotional reactivity where you're actually not in control for that brief moment of time. The horse is going to jump. It's going to take however many steps back. It's going to do whatever it's going to do. It might even buck and uh, moments like that. You're just hanging on for the ride, but that's not the, that's not the habitual state that you're in reactivity versus habitual reactivity. What we're trying to be free from is habitual reactivity. And I hope you can distinguish the difference there because it's a very big difference. Now, what's crazy with us, going back to the original analogy of freedom and imagining someone who's in prison, you know, that's essentially us. The difference is that we are in our own prison where we are our own jailers. We are the ones who hold ourselves captive and we don't even realize it. And what we're held captive by is our uh, beliefs, our conceptual truths that we believe in. So pause at some point and just think of Think of this, empirical truths versus conceptual truth. And what conceptual truths do I hang to or hold to or believe that cause me suffering or cause others suffering? And analyze those. It's a really powerful experience. Um, there's a place where we can go where you can experience reality as it is and, and not have any of the habitual truths um, really affecting you too much. And that's in nature. I love to experience being in nature. And I think the reason why I've thought about this a lot. And I think the reason why is because when we're out in nature, we are experiencing reality as it is. There's no pretending trees are just trees. Flowers are just flowers. Birds are just birds. Everyone, everything's 
what it is. It's just free to be what it is doing whatever it does. And we get to be there and we get to experience that. You know, it's kind of absurd to imagine being in nature and enjoying the scenery and thinking, but if the, you know, if that mountain were 10 degrees less steep, then this might be an ideal, uh, portrait for me. Or, you know, if that tree was uh, five feet over in that other direction, now maybe this landscape would look nice. We don't do that in nature because there's no need to. We're, it's one of the places where we can go and we can experience reality as it is and take it all in without assigning meaning to any of it. And furthermore, it does the same back to us. When we're out there, nature nature allows us to just be what we are, to be who we are. You know, you don't hear the birds chirping and then they change their song because, sorry, you wore a red jacket and you were supposed to wear a yellow jacket out here. There's none of that. You get to experience reality as it is and reality gets to accept us just as we are and that's why it feels so good to be there. That's my theory at least. Now all that goes away as soon as we're around people though, right? Because now people have conceptual truths and inside of these conceptual truths you do have uh, things like, why are you wearing that red jacket? I told you know I told you to wear your yellow jacket, or you look better in your yellow jacket, or why are you even wearing a jacket? It's warm out here. I'm not cold. Why are you? Wearing, you know, you get all these crazy things that start to happen where there's no freedom. There's the, the the sense of freedom, the freedom to be who you are, can be diminished when you're around other people. But that's the same thing that we do to others. You know, the ultimate sense of freedom that we can give to someone else is the freedom to allow them to just be who they are. That's also the ultimate sense of freedom that we can extend to ourselves is the freedom to allow ourselves to just be who we are. And that's a lot easier said than done. And the reason it's hard is because of our conceptual truths. The conceptual truths that we believe in bind us very much like the golden chain or like the iron chain, whether they're good or bad. So that's the ultimate sense of freedom here. And I wanted to wrap this up with one more thought. It's my favorite parable. And I know I've talked about this before earlier in another podcast episode, but it's the parable of the horse. The parable of the horse goes like this. There's an old man who's out in the field farming and a horse shows up and his neighbor comes running over and he says, how fortunate for you, you have a horse. And it came out of nowhere, and the old man just says, who knows what is good and what is bad? And he goes about doing his thing, puts the horse in the corral. Later that night or in the morning, he comes out and discovers the corral uh, is broken, and the horse has disappeared, and the neighbor comes running over, and he says, how unfortunate. How unfortunate for you. You had a horse, and now you don't. And the old man simply says, who knows what is good and what is bad? And he goes about doing his thing. And later in the day, the horse comes back with four additional horses and he takes the horses puts them in the corral fixes the corral the neighbor comes running over how fortunate for you your horses come back and it's brought additional horses he just says who knows what is good and what is bad and he goes about doing his thing and then the next day the his son is out working with the horses trying to uh tame the horse so that he can use it in the field and he falls off the horse and he breaks his leg And the neighbor comes running over and says, how unfortunate, your only son, you know, the only source of help in the field has broken his leg. This is so unfortunate. And the old man simply replies with who knows what is good and what is bad and goes about doing his thing. And then the next day the army comes into town and they're conscripting all the youth. 
and they can't take the farmer's son because he has a broken leg. So they leave him. They take everyone else, including the neighbor's son. The neighbor comes running over, and he says, how fortunate for you that your son had broken his leg, uh, and then goes on with his normal routine and then pauses and just says, you know, who knows what is good and what is bad, and goes back to his house. And the moral of the story here, I think sometimes the misunderstanding with this is um, to think that as we go through life, we just don't care. We don't care about things. Who knows what is good? Who knows what is bad? That's that's not what we're talking about here. And I clarify this in my podcast about acceptance versus resignation. This is not an act of resignation to life as it is. This is an act of acceptance of life as it is. Now, the sense of freedom in this parable comes from the old man who is not bound by assigning meaning to things. That's the freedom. The reactivity is there. That part's there. Um, I have no doubt that when his son falls and breaks his leg, this old man's thinking, oh, no, my poor son, you're in pain. Let me help you. Or, you know, when the horse first showed up, it's like, woohoo, a horse. And then it left the next morning. Oh, dang it. The horse is gone. Oh, well. And that, but that's the difference. The, oh, well, I go about doing what I need to do. I'm not attached to things. And even worse, I'm not making meaning of things. This, the, the old man in this parable is not making meaning of things. And that's what the neighbor's constantly doing, assigning meaning. This is fortunate. This is unfortunate. And everything that goes along with making meaning, that is our habitual reactivity. And the sense of freedom comes, again, between the stimulus and the response. There's a space, and in that space is our power to choose our response. This is exemplified in the story, this parable of the old man, where he can choose his response. He doesn't have to be bound by his habitual reactivity and and making meaning to things. And that's the sense of freedom that I wanted to talk about in this podcast episode. Um, I think the ultimate source of freedom that we can extend to someone is the freedom to be who they are. Thich Nhat Hanh says we must love uh, others in a way that they feel free. And I think that's the sense of freedom he's talking about here. The freedom to love someone without the... um, the conceptual constraints that I would put on someone because of my beliefs. You know, I love you except, or I love you but, if you were just this, or if you were not that, or if you were, you know, those are the conceptual truths that bind us. And freedom transcends our conceptual truths and allows us to to have the freedom to allow ourselves to be the way we are, to allow others to be the way that they are, and to just love in a, in a way that feels free. That's why I wanted to talk about this topic, freedom. And like with all my podcast episodes, if this is a topic that you've enjoyed, I would love to interact with you on our Facebook study group. If you just search for Secular Buddhism, you can find it there. Um, I'll have a link to it on our on secularbuddhism.com um, or on the Secular Buddhism Facebook page. That's easy to find as well, too. And if you enjoy this podcast, please Feel free to share it, give it a rating in iTunes, that really helps, and just feel free to reach out to me. I love talking about this stuff, and I look forward to another topic next week. Thanks. One more thought before I end the podcast. Um, I've been working with a couple of um, other companies uh, on developing an idea around doing some retreats. I've been really interested for quite some time to put together either workshops, like um, part day or full day workshops where we explore topics about mindfulness or meditation um, and learn 
you know, as a group in a, in a workshop type setting and also doing retreats. And one of the retreats that we're discussing is actually a really exciting one. It would be, you know, a, a week or even two week long retreat going somewhere like um, Africa, Uganda specifically, where we would have the uh, part of the retreat we're teaching the foundations of mindful living uh, in the evenings. But then during the day, we're doing experiential work with um, humanitarian projects, um, whether that be working on building schools, uh, digging wells, um, interacting with the local communities, providing uh, a hands-on help to um, different programs that are involved in, in villages in Uganda. Um, but I'm really interested in gauging what kind of interest there is. You know, if, if we were able to open this up for 10, 15, or even 20 people to do, I'd love to gauge your interest. So if this, if, if attending a retreat like that, or even just a, a shorter workshop, um, is of interest to you, please visit secularbuddhism.com forward slash retreats, plural retreats. Um, and there's a form you can fill out there that will help me to gauge what kind of interest there is. And if, if there's enough interest, then this is something I'd like to maybe put together, um, as a, a retreat going and learning the conceptual understanding of, um, secular Buddhism taught in, in courses, but also the experiential hands-on aspect of it, actually doing, um, uh, humanitarian work in Uganda. This would be probably late January or early February, but go on there and express your interest on secularbuddhism.com forward slash retreats. That will help me to gauge um, what kind of retreats we should put together. But I look forward to doing something like that with several of you. So um, let me know if you have any questions. Thanks again. And until next time. Mm-hmm.